there's a battle going on today for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for America Can We Talk with Debbie George Addis. On America Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. America Can We Talk starts now. And good evening and welcome. Thank you so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk. I'm so happy to be able to talk to you. You know, tonight I want to do my first five on the event that happened, and I think everyone pretty much in the nation realized what occurred this past week at a baseball field in Alexander, Virginia, where a Bernie Bernie Sanders-supporting deranged Democrat named James Hodgkins, and that's not the right name, Hodgkinson, opened fire on GOP members of Congress and their staff as they were uh, engaged in early morning baseball practice. The reason I want to talk about this is I think it's really important to think about what led that guy, Bernie Hodgkinson, to the point that he thought it was a rational decision to get to Washington and try to take out members. In fact, he asked someone who was getting to their car as he was pulling up, are those Republicans or Democrats out there? He was targeting Republicans. And I know the easy answer is, well, there's a lot of the Trump derangement syndrome. This is probably one of the crazy Trump deranged people. And there is Trump derangement. It's an epidemic. But... What that incident reflects, what it really shows, is a much deeper thing. That is the outcome of 40 years of Democrat Party messaging about the by Democrats, by the media, and by some of the left-wing hate groups, and I include in that this, the Southern Poverty Law Center, well-deserving that moniker. Those groups have spent 40 years telling Americans that their fellow Americans are all racist, xenophobic, homophobic, intolerant, hateful, the whole litany of accusations. And that language is what the Democrat and main, the main, uh, the leftists in America, mainly, it is their form of political communication. Just stop and think about what kinds of battles and issues we talk about in America. Just, I'll, I'll just pick one example. And my point in all this is that the American left has worked very hard to implant and foment rage. This is the outcome, not just Tr- Donald Trump. This is 40 years plus of Democrat messaging. For example, the Southern Poverty Law Center, they spoke about a woman— named Ayan Hirsi Ali. We've talked about her on the show many times. She uh, grew up in a Muslim country, grew up in Ethiopia, suffered terribly under Islamic law. She came to America. She tries to speak out to tell the truth about what she personally knows from her personal life experience about the dangers of radical Islam. She's labeled by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hater, as an extremist, unlike They are unwilling to label, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood, a group that actively, actually foments murder and jihad around the globe. That group, plenty prevalent in America, does not make the list for Southern Poverty Law Center. As a related little issue to how much hate is planted in the American thought by the American left, you remember the incident was several years ago now where the Family Research Council was targeted by a guy named Floyd Carkins, Corkins or something, and he opened fire at the Family Research Council. He said afterwards he wanted to get them because he read on the Southern Poverty Law website that the Family Research Council was a hate group. The Family Research Council, and the reason for that hate group moniker was 
because they stand for traditional marriage. I make that this point to say we're going to talk about this a lot tonight. America is very divided, but we cannot allow this instant to pass without recognizing how dangerous the political conversation is in America, how that really on the American left, whether you're talking about securing the border, marriage and transgender issues, the health care system, changing the tax structure, securing the border, revising the immigration system, conservatives come up with policies and ideas and they lay them out. They want to talk about them. The answer to the American left is a, a series of slurred and is label slinging. It is name calling. It's, you know, you're, well, you must be racist, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, whatever it is. And the reason they do that, and this is what I really want to get to the heart of this in tonight's first five. The liberals do this. The media, CNN, MSNBC, a lot of left-wing media, and the Democrats and organizations do this, like the Southern Poverty Law Center. They do it because it works. It works to fill American thought with resentment and hate and suspicion toward fellow Americans. It works in two ways. It works because it gets their followers so concerned, so upset, so distrustful that they think the Democrat Party is going to save them. This is implanting the hate that brings about Democrat support in campaigns. So that's the first reason that kind of messaging by the Democrats works. And the second reason is it works because it silences the average American. It silences the American who thinks, well, I kind of do support traditional marriage, but I don't think I'm going to say it. I don't want to be called this. I kind of do think the border wall is a good idea, but I don't think I want to say that. I don't want to be accused of not liking people who don't look like me. It silences conservatives. So the final lesson out of this horrible incident, beside that I'm grateful beyond words for the Capitol Police being there, being able to stop this guy before he did something um, Worse, which is there is so much intentional hatred toward the Republican Party. And Hillary Clinton, in her debate, asked her, who do you see your enemies? She lists the Iranians, insurance companies. But the best of all, the biggest enemy she named was the Republican Party. This is the messaging of the left. And this is why we have to fight as conservatives to speak up for the ideas of America that we talk about on this show every week. We got to go off to a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about We're going to answer Judge Jeanine Perot's question she raised on her show this past Friday. Why doesn't the GOP stand up for Donald Trump? Don't go away. Do you know that one in nearly five United States residents lives in an immigrant household? That we take in more than one million new legal immigrants every year? Studying the impact of federal immigration program is the mission of the Center for Immigration Studies, the nation's only think tank looking at the broad national effect of immigration policy. Whether it's on crime, welfare, national security, or the job market, CIS digs out information about immigration from government sources, translates it into English, and makes it available to the public, the news media, and policymakers in Washington. Check out its work at CIS.org. CIS makes the case for better enforcement against illegal immigration and lower levels of legal immigration in the future. Most other special interest groups pursue the opposite. The only thing standing between them and open borders is an informed public. Get informed and stay informed by visiting CIS.org. That's CIS.org. Hi, this is Debbie Georgiatis. On my radio show, we have the theme music by Krista Branch that has the refrain, I am America. I chose it because it summarizes what I think is a really important truth about America. 
We the people are America. We the people are blessed with extraordinary power in our country, and we have to use that power to keep America strong and free for everyone. And how do we do that? We have the responsibility to understand the issues facing our country, to get beyond soundbite and slogan politics. We have the responsibility when politicians propose solutions to understand, will those solutions preserve American-style freedom or slowly, incrementally destroy it? We have to vote once we are informed about the issues. But even more so, we have to speak up to our friends, our family members, to speak up in our daily life about the reality that we each have a responsibility and privilege to defend American-style freedom. This is Debbie Georgiatis on America Can We Talk. Texans have a long tradition of independence, and we don't like being told what to do, especially by liberal bureaucrats 1,000 miles away. That's why for 30 years, the Dallas-based Institute for Policy Innovation has fought Washington's efforts to take more of your money and freedom. IPI works every day to keep taxes low and freedom high, to promote free market health care, expand energy security, protect intellectual property, and combat onerous regulations that destroy American jobs. Politicians often talk smaller government, but then vote for more of it. By contrast, IPI has never veered from its mission to defend the Constitution and fight for freedom. If you want to be informed about free market policies and solutions, go to IPI's website and sign up. All of their information is free for sharing. Help IPI restore liberty and economic growth. Go to IPI.org today. That's IPI.org. One more time, go to IPI.org today. Our nation faces a choice. The path of big government based out of Washington or the unique brand of liberty and prosperity enjoyed here in Texas. For 27 years, the Texas Public Policy Foundation has helped leaders in the Lone Star State prove that fiscal restraint and small government can deliver opportunity and prosperity for all. The Texas Public Policy Foundation promotes and defends solutions here and around the country based on liberty, free enterprise, and personal responsibility. Whether informing the national debate on property rights energy, taxes, education, or criminal justice, the foundation works to translate ideas into real change. The Texas Public Policy Foundation does not accept government funds or contributions to influence the outcome of its research. It is supported by thousands of people like you who are concerned about the future of our country. You can help Texas remain strong as the beacon of liberty in America. Visit TexasPolicy.com to learn more. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. I love that you've tuned in. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Thanks for tuning in to my show. Just love doing the show. This week I have my roundtable here. I want to introduce a new member of the roundtable. First we have Mari Sullivan, been here since the start. And I also have Missy Shorey joining us tonight. She's a new member of the roundtable. And you want to give a quick introduction about yourself? Thank you, Debbie. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm so happy that we're all together. This is an absolute honor. So one of the things that really brought me to being a conservative activist is that all of my life, I've been called and known that we have something very special in the United States, and we have to protect it. And I've actually had the pleasure of serving and working in the United States Senate when I was very young and worked as a staffer for a number of years. And was actually an intern on the Hill back in the Reagan era during my summers. So but she was, was only five. Go that's ahead. so sweet. So sweet. <laughs> Child labor laws weren't quite intact yet. <laughs> and so that kind of set this tone. And during that time, we were exposed to a tremendous amount of thinking around the ideas of free market economics 
and letting people achieve their true potential on their own and seeing the impact of a freer market in terms of less regulations, et cetera. So that was exciting. And there weren't that many women in the room doing that. Fast forward, start my own business, have a PR agency, Shory Public Relations, founded it after working the very large agencies like Ogilvy and Hill and Knowlton. And I lived in Washington during that time. So I've seen the swamp. I know the swamp. And thank goodness I've had an opportunity to now live in Texas. And so Which is not now, the swamp. Which is yes. the... It's nice, dry heat, as we like to say down here. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, that's actually great. Since you mentioned Washington, I want to jump in and say, uh, and, and you mentioned the whole Reagan-era introduction of free markets and the kind of reinvigoration of free markets. This is part of what happened. When I go back to this story, the shooter in the, the Alexander, Virginia ballpark, the shooter was a guy who the famous, most famous picture of him on Facebook, he's holding a sign that says, tax the rich. His postings on Facebook, he, ha- he belongs to uh, organizations such as Terminate the Republican Party. It's, and he, another Facebook thing he likes, it's time to destroy Trump and the GOP. This is a guy who thinks that political activity consists of hate. And he thinks that the entire purpose of the tax system. Now, this is a guy who's had, you know, kind of, he did not do well in life. He was not successful. He's lost several jobs. He blew up at, uh, you know, yelled at some people at the uh, county. I think it was the home. They were, he was uh, uh, appraising or inspecting homes. And he yelled at, and they said, okay, never mind, you're out of here. So he, you know, he has problems of all kinds. But still, this is a guy who thinks that the purpose of the tax system is for the government to take away money from the other people and give it to him. That's what he thinks. And so he's campaigning on tax the rich. He's, he's a Bernie Sanders socialist. So he comes around. He gets to, you know, he finds his way to this campaign. He's outraged by Trump and the Trump derangement syndrome mode. And so he's in Washington. And, and you know, the deranged thought I've had about him, he's deranged, not us, but is that he thought he was doing good. I mean, this is his highest idea of doing good, is go to Washington and try to kill Republicans. And I know we were talking in the break how the Democrats are trying to say, hey, man, you know, he, he's out of whack. He really wasn't us. But what do you expect as a Democrat when you've spent years and years and years telling the American public that the reason, telling the, the poor in America, the reason you're poor is because these mean, greedy Republicans who are mostly white are rich and they won't share their money. This is pretty much the messaging of the Bernie Sanders and Democrat Party wing. So Hodgkins acts on, Hodgkinson acts on what he's been told. I do think there's some political accountability. Anybody? Absolutely, there's political accountability, and it's not just him. It's anyone who's carrying on the conversations where we've lost the ability to reason. We've lost the ability to think clearly. Our friends on the left do not want critical thinkers out there. They don't want guys like him saying, you know, wait a second. Instead of saying kill the Republican Party, I should recognize there's this thing called freedom of association in the United States. And, you know, he would know the Constitution, understand the parameters of the debate, and then be able to engage in a civil way. It is terrible. It is terrible what happened in his life. But you know what? There are a lot of other people who have lives that are far worse, and they are far, they are good people, they are proudful people, and they make a difference in this country. They're noble, hardworking Americans. And they Americans. are not the ones we are not celebrating. And that is where the dialogue needs to go. And that's the only role of government is to make sure that we honor those people and protect their freedoms. Okay, there's been a huge, I know, Mar, I jumped in, Mar, I probably wanted to say something, but I was going to add to your, what you were just saying. I'm glad you said that. Um, and by the way, if you're just tuning in, we have a new roundtable person. Mari saw many times here, and Missy Shorey, who was just speaking. So this kind of this show I talk about all the time it is to preserve the unique, exceptional, extraordinary idea that is America. So one of the things that what this guy was doing was Missy was pointing out he wasn't trying to say 
Let me explain my point of view on tax policy. Let me argue for higher taxes in the rich. Let me argue my economic facts or my political facts or my personal life story. He's saying, if you don't agree with me, I get to kill you. That's what he's saying. And this is not just this one guy, because what has happened in this last several months under this first year of Trump's presidency, you've had the Antifa movement, which is the fascist movement on the American left, calling other people fascists, but it is they, this this Antifa fascist movement, that is saying no speech on college campuses we don't like. We can burn buildings, knock over cars, shut down speech. This is it. The American left is untethered and out of control. And we're going to get to it later in the show. But I think a lot of Democrats in Washington, they're looking at this beast they have unleashed. They have caused people to think Trump isn't entitled to be president. He stole the election, which he didn't do. He cheated, which he didn't do. And they have a, a massive anger building up. And they're not really able to handle it. The other other attacks, just very quickly, um, because there, there are many articles written about it. But with the, we had that comedian never heard of before, but she she showed the severed head of Trump as a as a I guess on Facebook or wherever she was on Twitter. You've had a, a play in the Shakespeare in the Park where they're showing the assassination of President Trump. You have culture deeming it acceptable entertainment to attack and, and try to destroy the president. And you have, you know, you have virtually every night in television, someone's calling Trump a Nazi, a fascist, a racist, a misogynist, a traitor, on and on and on and on. Instead of saying, we'd like to argue about his border policy. We'd like to discuss our idea of Obamacare. There's no discussion left. Well, that isn't part of postmodernist thinking. And this comes from academia. I've been intrigued by watching the Dem Party just fall apart. They have no ideas. They're full of rage and, and, and despising of this country. And I've really tried to get my arms around it because I heard Van Jones on Hugh Hewitt. And he actually said Van to Jones Hugh, being a communist. Van, Van Jones being a, uh, definitely left of center. He described the win by uh, Obama, I'm, I'm sorry, not Obama, Trump as a white lash. But he actually said to Hugh Hewitt, he said, well, the Republicans are the party, they're colorblind, and um, uh, they're a meritocracy. But what about the alt-right? And I just thought to myself, well, how are we going to have heaven on earth? You're telling me that Van Jones is describing the, the Republican Party as colorblind meritocracy. It doesn't get better than that in terms of what, <laughs> what is possible anywhere in this world. But it goes back, in my way of thinking, at least what I've been studying, is what a lot of these young people learn in school, which is postmodern Revolutionary thinking based on Western civilization is no good. And in a patriarchal white society, there's no freedom for anybody of color, gender, or any this sort is, of— This is what young people are taught in yeah, colleges taught and that. even the high school level. There's just a failure to teach at the very young ages the notion of the beauty and, and importance of Western civilization, how we built a civilization around respect for you know the, the ardent, strident, back-and-forth exchange of ideas and, the, and, and learning from and listening to each other and, and civil discourse. These are hallmarks of Western civilization. The left has—and I, I do blame the left, broadly speaking, for the, just this notion among young people. No, we don't do that anymore. We, we don't have— have to listen. We are, we've been told what's right, and, and we are entitled to what we think, and nobody else, and we don't have to listen anymore. I tell you, you think that the, this incident at the ballpark might have been a little bit jolting? People think about it. Did you realize that the game, the next game occurred? So there was a practice. They were there for the GOP was going to play the Dems in a, in a baseball game, and 
it was a practice. So they had the game, and Trump did not appear at the game, but he actually appeared through a, um, I guess, a video cast. He showed up and just do a video cast. And the Democrat team, not the players, I guess, not members of Congress, but the Democrat staffers were booing Trump. This is just a few days after this horrific attempt to murder you know, it would have been, what, 30 Republicans were there, something like that? Right. And, and this is so this discourse thing is not lightly going away. We've... Oh, no, I was just thinking, you know, there's another element here, which is we need to look at the security implications here because only because we had those Capitol Hill police there. And let's get clear, only because they were armed. Did we have do we have less people being killed? I mean, killed. And if you think that that's not going to just put. Don't think there's a lot of people who might be saying, you know, I might run for Congress. They have a calling inside. But they see, you know what? This is not worth it. I mean, this is more exposure than people get in combat in some cases. So we really want to consider this. I mean, it should not be life-threatening to serve as the citizen legislature. Yeah, on that note, we have like 20 seconds. And, Missy, there were two kids on the field with a congressman. He had his children with him. They were just like 10 or 12. It was heartrending to see their pictures of horror on the bus. We're going to have to come back to this after the break, because coming up right after our break, we have Steve Moore joining us. He is, as many of you know that name, he's a Wall Street Journal guy for years. He's now the Heritage Foundation economist, the economist, economist, brilliant guy. We're going to talk with him about the Trump budget, and is it really going to drain the swamp? And the answer is yes. Don't go away. If there's one thing the conservative movement needs, it's a leader. And we have one, the Heritage Foundation. Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Heritage gets in the trenches on Capitol Hill. They promote principled solutions directly to lawmakers in Washington. And unlike politicians, they don't waver or compromise. But they're not a Washington institution. There are nearly a half million Heritage members and supporters in America. And they're on a mission to grow that number and build the conservative base. You can become a Heritage member by going to joinheritage.org today. I've been a member of Heritage myself for years. I have Heritage experts on my show, and I rely on their analysis to get the facts out. As a member, you'll get updates from Heritage Foundation on the fight for conservative solutions to America's challenges. Plus, you'll receive exclusive invitations to conservative events where you live. So join the growing movement. Find out more at joinheritage.org. That's joinheritage.org. If you want to get at the issues that really matter for women and men, go to IWF.org. That's the Independent Women's Forum. IWF is all about increasing the number of American women who value free markets and personal liberty. IWF's motto is all issues are women's issues. They bring a fact-based approach to politics, policy, and culture. When the left tried to peddle a phony war on women, IWF shot back with facts and figures. American women aren't victims in need of ever-increasing government protection. And IWF doesn't think things are perfect, but they believe that individual liberty is the key to prosperity and fulfillment. Along with their sister organization, Independent Women's Voice, IWVoice.org, which is a leader in the fight against Obamacare, they offer policy papers, op-eds, and a popular blog on issues of the day. So visit IWF at IWF.org. That's IWF.org.
Our nation faces a choice. The path of big government based out of Washington or the unique brand of liberty and prosperity enjoyed here in Texas. For 27 years, the Texas Public Policy Foundation has helped leaders in the Lone Star State prove that fiscal restraint and small government can deliver opportunity and prosperity for all. The Texas Public Policy Foundation promotes and defends solutions here and around the country based on liberty, free enterprise, and personal responsibility. Whether informing the national debate on property rights energy, taxes, education, or criminal justice, the foundation works to translate ideas into real change. The Texas Public Policy Foundation does not accept government funds or contributions to influence the outcome of its research. It is supported by thousands of people like you who are concerned about the future of our country. You can help Texas remain strong as the beacon of liberty in America. Visit TexasPolicy.com to learn more. Do you know that one in nearly five United States residents lives in an immigrant household? That we take in more than one million new legal immigrants every year? Studying the impact of federal immigration program is the mission of the Center for Immigration Studies, the nation's only think tank looking at the broad national effect of immigration policy. Whether it's on crime, welfare, national security, or the job market, CIS digs out information about immigration from government sources, translates it into English, and makes it available to the public, the news media, and policymakers in Washington. Check out its work at CIS.org. CIS makes the case for better enforcement against illegal immigration and lower levels of legal immigration in the future. Most other special interest groups pursue the opposite. The only thing standing between them and open borders is an informed public. Get informed and stay informed by visiting CIS.org. That's CIS.org. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. Just love that you've tuned in. We have my, my Right View Roundtable here tonight with me. I have Mari Sulva, Missy Shorey, and I believe we have online Wall Street Journal and Heritage Foundation economist Stephen Moore. Hello, sir. Hi. Thanks for having me. You know what? I'm, we're so happy. We were talking about you before the show started. We just, all of us, have so much respect for your writing and thinking and clarity. I think we've all heard you speak. And um, honestly, you make economics not just comprehensible, but even kind of fun to think about. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So we appreciate that. Uh, you know, it's not, economics is not complicated. It's only these, uh, you know, Ph.D. economists who make it so uh, hard to understand. But, you know, it's very simple that, uh, you know, when you tax something, you get less of it. You tax something less, you get more of it. And, you know, incentives matter. And, uh, you know, when you have more of a good or service, the price goes down. These are kind of universal concepts that so many liberals just have thrown out the window. They don't understand them. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, you have a nicer impression than I do because I think sometimes they do understand them, but they don't like them because if you yeah. follow free market economics, they don't have as much busyness to be doing controlling everybody else's lives if you let the free markets do things. And so I think that I just don't like it that much. But anyway, um, so to be clear for our listeners, we are speaking with Steve Moore. He is the Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Heritage Foundation and the Project for Economic Growth. Great writer. And um, I want to just run through a bunch of things you've been that are on people's minds that you've been writing about about. And I want to start with, there was something, when I saw the title of this article, I I did read it when I saw it, but it said, you wrote an article saying, no, Trump didn't cause Obamacare to fail. 
And I was thinking, why would you even write that? But then I saw the New York Times had floated the idea that somehow it was Republican Trump and other Republican failure to support Obamacare that caused its present implosion. And you corrected that. So would you just share that with our listeners? Well, it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, unbelievable, but a lot of liberals are blaming the collapse of Obamacare on the Republicans, uh, a bill that not a single Republican voted for. So this is a bit of a stretch. The new argument is that um, what's happening is that the, quote, uncertainty, unquote, about what's going to happen with the insurance market right now is what's destroying it. And what I what I went through is, wait a minute, that the insurance market was already collapsing two years before Donald Trump even announced he was running for president, for goodness sakes. I mean, you can't uh, – something that comes before something else can't be caused by it. Right? I mean, that's just a basic truism. Uh, and, and, you know, there was a big article about some of the major insurance companies that were pulling out because they'd lost so much money. So they lost money in 2013, 14, and 15, again, long before Donald Trump was, uh, was talking about running for president. Okay, and actually in your article you mentioned um, some of the big ones that were pulling out. The Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas City had just pulled out of Kansas and Missouri. And I think that's one thing for the average non-economist to understand, a basic notion that the reason insurance companies are pulling out of the Obamacare exchanges is not to be mean. It's because they can't make money in them. But they not, not only can they not make money, they're losing money. They're losing. Now, look, these are not charitable organizations. They are you know, organizations. And by the way, I don't have, I'm not going to, you know, uh, hold a candle for any of the health insurance companies. They were the ones who actually supported Obamacare in the first place because these big insurance companies thought, oh, this is great. We're going to have a big, big market subsidized by the government. Well, it's in, you know, so the insurance companies got in bed with Obama and the and big government and it bankrupted everybody. Uh, but the idea that somehow Republicans are, are, uh, are responsible for this. I mean, this is exactly when I was at the Wall Street Journal 10 years ago, we predicted exactly this was going to happen, that the insurance market would become a death spiral, where what would happen is sick people would sign up for insurance and healthy people would drop out of insurance, and that's precisely what has happened. Exactly. And I, I, I watched all that as the Obamacare uh, bill was being discussed and watched what the economists were saying about it. It's just not it was it was I mean, many people say designed to fail, certainly clearly going to fail based on it's uh, the structure of it. So so here we are now. We have Obamacare failing. We have insurance. By the way, let me just say one other thing about this. I think it's important for Americans to understand that the idea that we can stay with Obamacare is crazy. Obamacare is done. It's true. It's, it's, it's in a total state of collapse. So we are now in a in a juncture, a crossroads in healthcare. We're going to do one of two things. We're either going to have a government-run insurance system. That's what the liberals want. That's what they always wanted. Or we're going to use the free enterprise system. Now, if you think about it, gee, what would a government what would a government-run healthcare system look like? Well, let me think. Gee, I I know. <laughs> The Veterans Administration, you know, the VA system, the people are dying in the hospitals. That, that's what they want for everyone. I mean, these people are crazy. You know why? Because it's equally, they want equal coverage for everybody, and that means equally bad coverage for everyone. It absolutely does. And, and, and if you're just tuning, speaking with Steve Moore, the economist with Wall Street Journal and now Heritage Foundation, I love that just kind of plain and simple reality that Obamacare is following the, the decline that anyone ahead of time could have seen it was happening. But so here we are. We're in 2017. We have Congress flailing around and not been able to come up with a uh, compromise. Well, I just want the full repeal and be done, but can't come up with something. But you went ahead and, and attacked something else I want to talk about. And this is actually an article you wrote 
wrote in May, but it was talking about the idea of the uh, Republicans are trying to take the taxes out of Obamacare, which I, were, a lot of people didn't like the taxes to start with, but you made these great, I mean, as you say, common sense economic arguments. Like, I think a lot of liberals were complaining, well, you shouldn't take away the taxes of insurance companies, leave those big taxes in. And, and you were pointing out, I love your point, that you know, if you tax insurance companies, it makes your business more expensive. And where is it they're going to turn to recoup that money except what they charge their customers, their clients, their policyholders? Right? Right. Yeah. Well, you had a bunch of those arguments, which I just – your article is called How Obamacare Taxes Degrade Our Healthcare System. And so overall, you were kind of the notion that if, if, if to repeal Obamacare, you, you should really be pulling all the taxes out of it. Is that right? Of course. And, and I want to make one other quick point, if I may, because this has happened subsequent to that article I wrote uh, two weeks ago. Uh, there, was an hour, there was a study that was not done by Heritage Foundation or uh, the Republican Party or any conservative group. It was done by the United States government, what's called the CMS, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. They announced that from 2013 to 2016, on average, health insurance premiums doubled. So what's happening is that the Affordable Care Act has become the Unaffordable Care Act. Nobody can, you know, remember, do you remember when Barack Obama said every family was going to save $2,500 on their health insurance? Absolutely. <laughs> family is paying thousands and thousands of dollars more. You're living on a, uh, and by the way, I think you're in Arizona, aren't you? We're in Texas. Oh, Texas. Well, you know, uh, right, your next door neighbor in Arizona, they're, uh, they're, premiums have gone up uh, more than doubled in two years. Can you believe that? So that means people are paying four or $5,000 a year more. If you're a, uh, a family with an income of forty or $50,000, you can't afford it. You're going to drop your insurance. You're going to say, you know, we, we can't afford insurance any longer. And that's why the big lie out there is that all these people are going to lose their insurance under the Republican plan. No, ladies and gentlemen, everybody's going to lose their health insurance under Obamacare because there isn't going to be any insurance in five years. It's, it's going to be a completely, the market is completely I love that point. I love that point. And, yeah, I I do kind of, I of course, read conservative news sources all the time. I do sometimes go over and check out what the libs have to say. And a lot of this whole implosion of Obamacare thing is being blamed either on the insurance companies that they just don't want to cooperate with it and and are greedy or trying to earn too much money or in the failure of the Republicans um, to to somehow rescue it and save it. But just I, I feel like there's just economic ignorance is contributing to people's inability to comprehend it was. It was a faulty structure to start with. Well, I think people are worried about what will happen under the Republican plan. And, and, you know, that's a, but people are very, you know, your health is one of your most important things, right? You want to make sure that your health is is, is safe and, and secure. But uh, Obamacare has not done that for people. I mean, if most of the people who've gotten insurance have gotten, gotten insurance under what's called Medicaid. Well, Medicaid is one of the worst insurance systems in the world. People under Medicaid don't have better health outcomes, and people don't have any health insurance at all. So we're not doing a big favor to the states, the federal government, or patients when we load up on, on uh, more Medicaid. Uh, so, yeah, look, we can do much better. I believe we can cover everybody in America with a health insurance plan, and we can do it for 30 percent less than Obamacare costs, and we can do that by tapping into the free enterprise system and having more competition among insurers, more choice for patients. And when you have more, this gets back to your basic question about what's economics all about. It's when you have more competition and choice, what happens to prices? They go down. 
Love that. You know, we're going to go up, come up in a break here in about a minute. We come back after the break. There are three things I want to hit on. One was you wrote a great article called Trump Budget Drains a Swamp. And again, this was in March. I know it was in March, but the budget's still kind of, you know, we're, we're still moved forward too far. Um, I also want to talk about tax reform. Maybe we'll start with that after the break because there's been a lot of discussion. I mean, everyone knows Republicans run on cutting taxes. And now that we're actually talking about cutting taxes, there's quite a bit of an effort um, among some and the on the conservative side, the Republican side, to try to talk about having a border adjustment tax, to to try to somehow fix a tax system and but somehow do something in tax system that keeps businesses from leaving America or entices them to come back to America. And I want to be sure and have you explain. Uh, I, I think you're going to say that you're not in favor of that. I certainly hope so, but I think so. But I want to talk about, you know, what, what's so bad about that idea and really what do we need to do for tax reform? This is Debbie Georgias, Mari Selvin, Missy Shorey, talking to Steve Moore. Come back after the break. America faces unprecedented threats to our national security. The Center for Security Policy, based in Washington, D.C., is a national leader focused on the organization, management, and direction of public policy coalitions to promote U.S. national security. The Center is a special forces in the war of ideas dedicated to identifying opportunities and challenges likely to affect American security and acting promptly to ensure that they are the subject of focused national examination and effective action. The Center enlists support from executive branch officials, key legislators, and other public policy organizations and brings these teams together to develop and shape policies that will keep America safe. Check out centerforsecuritypolicy.org for the latest news and developments brought to you by America's leading security experts. Becoming and remaining informed is one of the best ways every citizen can be a part of the mission to keep America safe. That's centerforsecuritypolicy.org. The National Center for Policy Analysis brings together the best and brightest minds to tackle the country's most difficult public policy problems in healthcare, taxes, retirement, education, energy, and now national security. The NCPA works to develop and promote private free market alternatives to government regulation and control, solving problems by relying on the strength of competition in the private sector. As America's think tank, the NCPA wants to make sure you have access to simple, clear solutions to the issues that matter to you. Come get to know the NCPA at one of their events and join the conversation by following them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. To get policy solutions delivered straight to your inbox, sign up for the NCPA free email newsletter or subscribe to one of their policy blogs. To get involved with America's Think Tank, go online today to ncpa.org. The NCPA would love your support and you'll love being part of the solutions to America's challenges. So go to ncpa.org. That's ncpa.org. Could you lose your career because of your faith? Could your pastor be sued because of his sermons? Can students and teachers be punished because of what they believe about God? Can the government or even your employer force you to violate your beliefs? Get the answers and, if necessary, legal protection from First Liberty Institute. First Liberty is the nation's largest legal organization dedicated exclusively to restoring religious freedom in America. In fact... 
First Liberty's nationwide network of top attorneys win over 90% of their cases. They've won at the Supreme Court all the way down to local schools. Visit FirstLiberty.org to learn more about how First Liberty is protecting religious freedom for all Americans in the workplace, public schools, your church, the military, and more. That's FirstLiberty.org. If you want hope for religious freedom and a free listing of your rights, go to FirstLiberty.org now. Attention Ronald Reagan fans. What is the one item most sought after by Americans who love the Gipper? It's Young America's Foundation's Reagan Ranch Calendar. Young America's Foundation is the leading youth outreach organization dedicated to ensuring that increasing numbers of young Americans understand and are inspired by the ideas of individual freedom, a strong national defense, free enterprise, and traditional values. New audiences of young people across the country are introduced to conservative ideas through Young America's Foundation's programs, including the Reagan Ranch Program. The Reagan Ranch calendar contains spectacular images of the Gipper enjoying his beautiful 688-acre ranch, the Western White House. For a limited time, the calendar is free. Even shipping is free. To receive your beautiful Reagan Ranch calendar from Young America's Foundation, call 800-USA-1776 and mention the phrase Reagan Gift. Again, the number is 1-800-USA-1776 and Reagan Gift is the code. Learn more about Young America's Foundation at www.yaf.org. That's yaf.org. And welcome back. I'm so glad you've tuned in. We are continuing our conversation with a nationally known economist and uh, Stephen Moore, and he's also a former Wall Street Journal person, and now he's with the Heritage Foundation, the Distinguished Visiting Fellow on the Project for Economic Growth at the Heritage Foundation. So I want to turn, first of all, welcome and thank you again for being with us tonight. I think a lot of Americans listened to Donald Trump during the campaign and he kept Salmon do something about these com- companies that leave America to manufacture things elsewhere. I'm going to do mm-hmm. something in the taxes or some way to stop that, to bring them back home and, and to disincentivize them from leaving. And I think that is what's behind this border adjustment tax that's being talked about. So is, is that what it is? And what, is, what should the tax system do to try to keep companies in America? <laughs> well, we are seeing a lot of companies leave. That's no, there's no question about that. And the reason they're leaving is because of high taxes and high regulations. And, you know, I talked to Donald Trump about this. I said, Donald, you know, we don't need trade protectionist policies or a border adjustment tax. We just need to get our corporate business taxes down. We need to get our regulations off the back of our businesses. And if we do those things, these companies are going to come back to Texas and Arizona and Michigan, Ohio and Pennsylvania, places that have been uh, left behind. So, you know, the, the government has been uh, working almost against American companies, and, and that's one of the reasons we see so many companies that have left these shores and taken jobs with them, and that's why Americans are so angry. But the way to do that is to – did you know, by the way, we have the highest business taxes in the world? It's I did stupid. know that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, we're supposed to be the land of the free. <laughs> yeah, and so it's interesting. I mean, yes, I in fact, I you, another piece, and I have to tell our listeners, every all the articles we are referring to tonight are up on the website, AmericaCanWeTalk.org, and they're on the Facebook page, America Can We Talk, and we urge you to read them because they really are very, um, I mean, they're already up there. You can go check them out while we're talking. But you wrote something um, in the New York Times, uh, Why Are Republicans Making Tax Reform So Hard? And again, this is from a couple months ago, but the issues are kind of still the same. 
Uh, and so to complete this, to get really clear, the border adjustment tax, is, it's not needed in order to, as the best incentive to keep companies from, to stay in America or prevent them from leaving. But it's also actually detrimental, right? Yeah, it's, it's and you know, if we had that tax, it would be, you know, like a, would be like a, a, a a sales tax on buying things that, you know, when you call them Walmart or other stores, Home Depot. So I, I don't really see the need for this. I think it would hurt consumers. Look, if we were starting over again and we were starting a new tax system, then I agree with Paul Ryan. We should have a ta- You know, I do believe we should tax what we import, not what we export, right? I mean, we should, we should tax what's brought into the country, and that's what's produced in the country. And, and that makes sense. And I th- But the problem is you can't get from here to there. And uh, the worry is you're going to have a sales tax on top of a federal income tax, and then the government's going to collect more and more money, and uh, it's going to put a squeeze on American taxpayers. So our idea, and I did this with Steve Forbes and Larry Kudlow and our Lapper, we just basically said, look, Republicans are supposed to be cutting taxes. We need a tax cut to get this economy moving. You know, the economy boomed right after, remember, right after Trump was was elected, the stock market went through a huge boom, mm-hmm. and then we saw consumer confidence grow, and we saw business confidence grow, and we saw more, uh, you know, it just seemed like the economy had a nice bounce in its stuff. And what's happened since then is people are getting very nervous about whether this tax cut's going to happen or not. And now the economy's starting to falter a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm so glad you, you laid out all those things. And on the subject of this tax thing that's being discussed in Washington, and, and everyone's working on this um, trying to get a better tax system, and I certainly agree. I think you, in your article, you talked about the need to reduce this uh, corporate tax rate uh, yep. down from the high of all 30. Businesses, all businesses, every business, not just the corporations, every small business in America. Every time I met with Donald Trump about this, you know, we talked about the business tax. He said, yes, of course we have to get the corporate taxes down because we're the highest in the world. But then you know what he said? He said, we are going to make sure that this tax cut is available to the 26.5 million small businesses in this country because you know this. Those are the businesses that create, you know, 60, 70 percent of the jobs. Absolutely, they are. Absolutely, they are. And, you know, it's interesting, too. I want to just back to the economics thing being sometimes um, people aren't as familiar with economics as, as they might want to be. But all the people and the left will argue to the American public. We've been talking about how the public gets duped by the left often, but, you know, the left will argue, well, they're just, these are tax cuts for the rich and tax cuts for big corporations. It's so evil. And, you know, what happened? Why why can't we get tax cuts? When really the reality is reducing taxes on businesses just, it it not just gives a boon to that particular business, gives them more cash on hand, enables them to grow and to hire people, and to hire the little guy who has been unemployed for years and years because new jobs are created. I mean, the, the cutting of taxes to businesses is a way to help the little guy. Of course. Of course. And, you know, I mean, you know, my old boss, Dick Army, who was also from Texas, you may remember him. Oh, yeah. He used to, he was a member of Congress. He was a House Majority Leader, great, great free enterprise guy and an economist in his own right. He used to always say that liberals love jobs, but they hate employers. <laughs> And you can't you can't have a job. I mean, you know, unless you're working for the government, you can't have a job without an employer. And those employers, mostly, as I just said, are the small business employers. I think about people like my dad, who hired thirty, you know, about thirty or forty employees in his business, and you know, he did pretty well with that business. He worked at it for forty years and built it up and, and built it up to, into a successful company. And now, for the left to villainize and demonize him because somehow, you know, here's a guy who helped put forty people. 
uh, you know, into the middle class, and he, he built up a business and provided services for people and worked and put, you know, so much sweat equity into that business. He wasn't always there when I was growing up because he was always at the office. And, and now they want to, they uh, you know, treat him like he's a demon because he has some money now. And then, and then, you know, what makes me even more angry is then they say, oh, by the way, we're going to, you know, when you die, we're going to take half of it away from you in, the, in terms of the yeah. death tax. The, the most immoral tax ever is the death tax. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, I know some of the things to an economist like you, and you've thought so much about these issues over the years and closely examined various tax policies. A lot of what we're saying tonight is really basic. I know that. But I'm, I do feel like there's so many people I, I discover. I, I, you know, I'm a lawyer by background, and so I, I kind of learned economics and became politically involved, try to understand better how to talk about them and argue about them. But I'm constantly struck by people who are functioning adults, college educated, you know, living, working, and doing their thing that don't have this, the, the, um, especially if they are from the left-wing perspective, don't even have a sense of these real basic, simple things we're talking about, like when you cut taxes for businesses, it helps the little guy get a job, and therefore that guy has a family and has food on the table and his kids can go to school. I mean, the whole the whole interconnection of the economy is just so important to recognize, and, and, and I know you know it, and um, free market-type people don't do know it, but a lot of people don't. Okay, I don't want to lose our time. One other quick thing on that. The best welfare program. Okay, you ready for this? The best welfare program is a job. Amen. I love that, too. I couldn't agree more. Okay, we have five minutes left, and I so want you to tell our listeners, if you could, uh, changing the subject again, you wrote about the Trump budget draining the swamp. And that draining the swamp thing, obviously, huge, huge uh, slogan and, and energy behind Trump's election. So how does Trump's budget, which is you know now just a proposal sitting in Congress, waiting to see what happens with it, but how does it drain the swamp? Well, it does a couple of things. First of all, it cuts hundreds and hundreds of wasteful, useless, obsolete federal programs. And, I mean, everyone knows that the federal government wastes about 30 cents of every dollar. It's not, you know, you know that. 30 cents of every dollar you send to Washington is wasted. And for once, we have a president who wants to go after that waste and say, let's get rid of the things that don't work. Look, if a program is working, we should keep it. But if it's not working, why do we keep spending money on it year after year after year? It's just a, an atrocious waste of money. And so he wants to do that. He wants to – here's something that's really riled liberals, but I am in 100 percent agree with him on this. We, yes, we should have a safety net for people if they fall on tough times, if they lose their job. But you know what? There should be a work-for-welfare requirement. If you're on food stamps, if you're on disability, if you're on uh, public housing, you should have to work to get those benefits. And if you can't find a job, the government will find a job for you. But this idea that you should be able to sit home and not work – look, there's dignity – and there's uh, and a road forward when you're working. By not working, though, you're just sitting home, your your job skills cal- calcify. We've got to get people back into the workforce. Did you know we have 42 million people on food stamps today? 42 million people on food stamps? I mean, that's ridiculous. There's 70 million people on Medicaid, the, the welfare program for health. They've got, they've got you know, uh, another 20, 25 million people on disability. We Everybody can't be collecting welfare or the country's going to go bankrupt. <laughs> because, as we point out so often, the government has no money. All those programs that exactly. you just <laughs> named, they are funded by the government, which is in turn funded by the people who actually work of and pay course. taxes. Yeah. Of and, you're, you're, you've got the economics. You see, you get an A in economics today. Huh? You've got it exactly right because right, these things are simple. The government doesn't, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if the, money, the government could just print all this money and all our problems would go away? I mean, that's what Mexico and Argentina and Bolivia tried. It didn't work so well there. You know, we need that. Government can only 
collect a dollar, ladies and gentlemen, spend a dollar when it takes a dollar from you and me. It's that simple. It is. And just so important. These are such basic things. And I honestly think Donald Trump could help himself selling this budget by saying these kind of simple things in speeches, because maybe the Washington insider elites would think, oh, it's so patronizing. Everyone knows this, but they don't. America doesn't know it. Okay, last thing is we're now we're really almost out of time in two minutes here. But you mentioned in your article that there is within this Trump budget a plan for deep cutbacks in the State Department, Foreign Service and Foreign Aid. That is a sacred cow for him to touch. You want to talk about that? Well, foreign aid is a complete disaster. I mean, there's only one foreign aid program that's ever worked. I mean, you know, foreign aid basically just transfers gov- uh, money from one government to another. Uh, yes, we want to help people in you know, countries that are poor, whether it's in Africa or the Middle East. But the way to do that is for America to lead by example. Lead by example. And when we get it right in America, the rest of the world gets it right. You know, my buddy Larry Cuddle, I'm going to end this interview by recommending a great book. By my good friend and one of the best economists in the country, Larry Kopal, and it's called JFK, JFK and the Reagan Revolution. And J, both JFK and, and Ronald Reagan both cut taxes, and guess what happened when both of them cut taxes? The economy boomed. It's going to happen again when Donald Trump cuts taxes. I love it. Folks, we are speaking to Steve Moore, and I want to encourage you again, if you go to our website, AmericaCanWeTalk.org, all these articles we're talking about. And I, I want to tell you something else, Steve, because I didn't really study economics in college. I love political science, American history, went to law school, but I love learning about it. And I agree with you that some of these simple, they're almost, they're, they're, they're um, human nature, they're, they're logical by human nature, uh, with laws of economics that you've talked about. But you just have uh, the articles we talked about tonight about how the Trump budget drains a swamp and actually a great article. Won't have time to talk about about the coal industry coming back, just as Trump promised. Coal jobs and clean coal coming back. It's a fabulous thing. So I want to thank you. I know that you and Heritage Foundation work closely with President Trump in developing his economic plans. Thanks for doing that. And Steve Moore, thanks so much for calling in. All right. Thank you very much. I hope you have a great weekend, and I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. And we're going to zip off to our break. When we come back, we're going to talk about whether or not Donald Trump should fire Mueller, Mueller the uh, special prosecutor. Don't go away. Wait, can you-